0: Well, this was another British retailer. uh, And they asked the question, can you describe Christmas in three words? Uh, And there were a number of answers that were given. They asked um, celebrities uh, to describe Christmas in three words. Here were some of the suggestions. Eating too much. The Queen's speech. um, Pulling a cracker. Filling a stocking. Well everything that Paul says in verses 3 to 7 about becoming a Christian can be summarized in three words. Those are the three words that you find at the beginning of Titus 3 in verse 5. Where Paul says, "He that is God saved us." God saved us. That's what it means to become a Christian. God saves us. God saved us," says Paul. But then he does fill that out. He expands what he means in these verses, and I want to look at these verses as a series of five questions uh, to which Paul provides the answers. And the first question is this, looking at verses 3 to 7, From what has God saved us? From what has God saved us? Hopefully that will appear at some point. Oh, there we go. From what has God saved us? That's the first question. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Christians are people whose lives can be divided into two parts, not necessarily two equal parts. For some, the time that... Uh, they lived before they became a Christian is much longer than the time that they have lived after they became a Christian. For others, it's the other way around. Many Christians are not able to identify an exact date uh, or time when that change occurred, but a change has occurred. Uh, What really matters is is not how long you've been a Christian, not how long you've been trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, It's not whether you can isolate a definite time or place at which you became a Christian, but rather what matters is that God has saved you and that change has occurred in your life, a significant, a radical change has taken place so that your life now is not what your life once was. The Apostle Paul here writes about what our lives were once like. Paul uses six phrases to describe what we were like before God saved us. Paul says here in verse 3, We were foolish. We made wrong decisions. We acted unwisely. We were disobedient. We lived in rebellion against God. Uh, Often we acted even against our own consciences. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We believed things that weren't true. We thought that we knew best. We were led astray. We were led into danger. We were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were captive, captive to desires that not all of which were good. We were unable to kick ingrained bad habits. We were addicted to pleasure, enslaved to all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We were selfish. We were self-promoting. We wanted what other people had. We were jealous of the success of others. We lived in malice and envy. We were hated, and we hated one another. People disliked us because of our selfishness and our sin, and we hated other people. We loved ourselves more than we loved others. And those six phrases that we find there in verse 3, they describe someone whose mind is blind, whose heart is bad, and whose will is bound. And yet, until we understand that verse 3 describes us, describes each of us in our sinful condition, then we won't realize that we need to be saved. Because this is what every Christian once was. The Apostle Paul says, this is what he once was. At one time, we too, we foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But the implication of what Paul is writing here is that a change has now occurred. That's what we once were, and now we are different. Now we live differently with God's help, but we're living differently. And we can look at those six phrases that we find in verse 3 and think of the changes that have occurred in relation to those phrases— When God saves you, you begin to to become wise, to make wiser decisions. You want now to live in obedience towards God. You're no longer deceived. You know the truth and the truth has set you free. Your life is no longer dominated by sinful passions and by the pursuit of selfish pleasure. Now you seek God and you seek the well-being of others. You've learned the secret of true contentment. You are loved, and you love others. That's not to say that Christians are perfect, for our sinful natures are still very active. But we're no longer bound, we're no longer held captive by our sinful natures. We're no longer enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, for the Holy Spirit is now at work. And the Holy Spirit at work within each believer enlightens our minds, changes our wills, and renews the desires of our hearts. What has God saved us from? We see that in verse 3. And then the second question is, when has God saved us? When has God saved us? Look at verse 4. Paul says, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Now Paul is here referring to the coming of Jesus into the world To the eternal Son of God appearing as a man coming and living here on earth. You see the kindness and love of God that appears by that phrase Paul is referring to Jesus. To Jesus. Jesus is the fullest and the clearest expression of the kindness and the love of God. Jesus is the embodiment. Jesus is the personification of the loving kindness of God of God and it is when Jesus came that God saved us Jesus came to save Jesus is the savior his name means God saves Jesus came to save his life's work and his death's work was the saving of many people the saving of many sinners when has God saved us he saved us when Jesus came when the kindness and the love of God appeared the third question is why has God saved us why has God saved us look at the beginning of verse 5 he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done did I do that sorry oh Colin I'll leave you to um, can I let you just work away there I'm going to forget about my um, clicker (laughs) The third question is, why has God saved us? He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We do not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Salvation is not you do your best and let God do the rest. Salvation is not the prize that God awards for good behavior. Salvation is not us reaching up to God, but it is God in his grace God in his loving kindness reaching down to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Reaching down to us and lifting us up out of our sin and out of our misery. Salvation is not about what we do for God. But salvation is about what God has done for us. What God has done for us in Jesus. He saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done. But because of his mercy salvation is a gift from God and it's offered freely to you salvation is the result of God's mercy and not our merits because of his mercy the fourth question is how has God saved us how has God saved us look at the rest of verse 5 and verse 6 he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously Through Jesus Christ our Saviour. You see that all three members of the triune God are mentioned there. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Salvation was administered by God the Father. It was accomplished by Jesus Christ and it is personally applied by God the Holy Spirit. God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Washing. Washing the implication there of cleansing the the cleansing of our sin the forgiveness of our sin and then paul uses two other words referring to this work of the holy spirit the the work of rebirth and the work of renewal rebirth tells us that becoming a christian is a new beginning our hearts are regenerated we're born again that work of rebirth worked in us by the holy spirit But also the Holy Spirit is at work in the believer, and it's a work of renewal, telling us the Holy Spirit is renewing us continually from within, giving us new desires, giving us new passions that focus on pleasing God and bringing glory to God. How has God saved us? He saved us through the work of the Holy Spirit, poured out because of the work of Jesus Christ. And then the fifth question is, for what purpose has God saved us? For what purpose has God saved us? Look at verse 7. God saved us so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Being saved by God is being justified by his grace. It's to be considered righteous in the sight of God. We're not righteous. We've sinned against God. We've sinned grievously against God but when God looks upon us if our trust and hope is in Jesus Christ when God looks upon us he sees not our sin but rather he sees the righteousness of his son the Lord Jesus Christ and our sins have been forgiven because Jesus dies in our place And so we're considered righteous in God's sight. We're justified, justified not by anything that we have done, but we're justified by his grace so that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The end purpose of salvation is that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. 1991, there was a a film called Dying Young, the actress. Julia Roberts played a nurse named Hilary O'Neill. and She was responsible for the medical care of a very rich 28-year-old man, a uh, man suffering from leukemia, uh, called Victor Geddes. Uh, and in this film, Hillary and Victor fall in love, uh, the nurse and the patient. Uh, and Victor stops his chemotherapy so that they can enjoy time together in a coastal town in Northern California. Uh, and they seem happy, and then Victor... He stops his chemo but then he runs away and he gives no explanation why until he's found and then he explains that he ran away because he couldn't bear hoping. He was afraid to hope that there might be a future for him. I'm afraid of hoping, he said. The Bible says that those whom God saves, those who believe, those who believe in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. They will not perish but will have eternal life. That's our hope as Christians that we will be co-heirs with Jesus. That we will be citizens of heaven, that we will be with God, that we will be with God forever, that we will enjoy life with God in perfect holiness and happiness forever and ever and ever that's our hope and we need not be afraid of hoping for it is not a forlorn hope it's not a foolish hope but it is a sure and a certain hope a sure and a certain hope that acts as an anchor to our souls and a hope that is ours because the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified who died and was buried rose again ascended into heaven he is alive and those who trust in him will be made alive with him That's our great hope as believers. For what purpose has God saved us? He saved us so that we might be with him forever in heaven. And then in the new creation, that we might be with him. God saved us. That's what's involved in becoming a Christian. It's the work of God. God saved us. We read here what he has saved us from. We read about when he saved us. We've read about how he saved us. We read, too, about for what purpose he has saved us. God saved us. Verses 3 to 7, they're a trustworthy saying. That's what Paul says there at the beginning of verse 8. These are words that are worthy of full acceptance and trust. Words that describe becoming a Christian. But having become a Christian, what does that mean for us now? How are we then to live as a Christian? And so Paul moves on. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 8. Our second main heading here in verse 8. Be devoted to doing good. Be devoted to doing good. In verse 8, Paul tells Titus to stress these gospel truths so that those who have trusted in God, those who are Christians, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. It's as if Paul is saying, think of all the good that God has done for you. God saved us, even though we once were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. God has been kind and loving. He's been merciful and gracious. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to be our savior, to accomplish salvation for us. And then he has sent the Holy Spirit into the world to apply that salvation to us personally, through rebirth and renewal. God has given us these wonderful gifts, the gift of his son and the gift of his spirit to cleanse us, to justify us, to revive us, to renew us, to make us heirs, to give us eternal life. And surely now, with all of this experience of God's goodness, surely we want to do good to others. Surely we now want to show loving kindness to others, even as we have experienced that from God the end of verse 8, Paul says, These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. To be devoted to doing what is good, to live as Christians who are devoted to doing what is good, surely that will bring benefits to those that we live alongside, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our workplaces, in society. These things are excellent and profitable for Everyone. And really, that then takes us back to the beginning, to verses 1 and 2, to the beginning of this passage, and to our third main heading. In verses 1 and 2, Paul urges Christians to be model citizens. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate. And to show true humility toward all men. Titus chapter 2, Paul has been teaching Timothy what is to be taught to various groups within the church, amongst God's people, Uh, the churches in Crete, uh, to the older men and the older women, to the younger men and the younger women, uh, to the slaves. Well, how are Christians to relate to the state? What are our responsibilities as Christian citizens? Well, our default position is to be subject to rulers and authorities. We are to be obedient to those who rule over us, to recognize their governance over us. We are to comply with the laws of the land in which we live, unless to do so would bring us into conflict with God's law. Now there's no qualification that is given here in verse one that is to limit our obedience to the rulers and to the authorities. But we are told in verse one to be ready to do whatever is good. So to be obedient, to recognize the rulers and authorities and to do what is good. And surely that precludes doing what is evil and doing what is wrong. But to do what is good then also in these verses, verses 1 and 2, we're urged to be careful how we speak. To slander no one. And our attitude and our actions are also important. We're told here to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility toward all men. And you see, in these verses, we're being urged to live socially responsible lives. We are, as Christian people, to be model citizens. As far as we can be without compromise. If we have to make a choice between obeying God or obeying men, then we obey God. But wherever possible, we obey those who are in authority over us. We are to do good. We are to do whatever is good. Four years ago, and maybe some photographs have come up here, or a photograph at least will come up. Four years ago, Cary Baptist Church in Reading, where I'm one of the pastors, uh, we bought and then reopened what had been a local pub. So um, you can see the chapel there on the right-hand side, uh, and then in the foreground of the picture, the oasis. Uh, So the church bought um, the pub, uh, and we've converted it now into a community outreach center. Uh, And the vision for the oasis is that it is to enable the church to embrace, enrich, and evangelize the local community. And I want you to notice the first two E's of that statement. Embrace and enrich. Embrace, enrich, and evangelize. Yes, we want to evangelize the community. We want to share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ with others. We want others to experience that loving kindness of god uh, that they might recognize their sinfulness their need of salvation that they might turn in repentance and faith and put their hope and trust in jesus christ we want to evangelize the local community we want to tell them the gospel we want to share the gospel with them but we also want as a church to embrace our local community we want simply to express love to those who live around us where the chapel is we want to understand and respond to the needs of the community we want to show our concern and our care for people especially needy people and there are many needy people who live around the streets where the chapel is but we want also to use the oasis to enrich the local community through the oasis we want to make a difference in the community we want that community to be, <clears throat> to be glad that we as a church are present within the community. And so we want to do what is good. We want to do whatever is good. We want to be devoted to doing good in the community. We want to initiate and extend and improve amenities in the community. And the reason that we want to embrace the community and enrich the community is that we might have the opportunity then to evangelize the community. Now we're still working through exactly what it means for us to embrace and to enrich our community. It's still very much a work in progress. But we are concerned that we do good where God has placed us. And I think this passage, Titus 3, verses 1 to 8, raises a number of questions for us to think through and to try and answer. Questions for us to face as individuals and questions for us to face as a church. What are you doing as a church? What are you doing individually to embrace and enrich your community? The places where you live and work and worship. What are you doing to be a blessing to those that you live alongside, to those that you live amongst? what good are you doing to profit wider society christians are to be those who are ready to do whatever is good to be devoted to doing what is good who are eager to do what is good verses one and two also we're urged to consider how we speak how do we speak about others are we careful in what we say about other people And then how do we act towards others? And what is our attitude towards others? If someone was asked to describe you, would they use the three adjectives that we find in verse 2? That Paul says ought to be true of every believer. We want to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all men. Peaceable, considerate and humble. Could those three words be used to describe us? could certainly be used of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one who did what was good. He was peaceable. He was considerate. And he was humble. We want to be like Christ. It's all too easy these days, I think, as evangelical Christians to be known for the things that we stand against and the things that we're opposed to. But we want to be known for the things that we stand for and the things that we promote, and the things that we uphold. And we need to work hard to find ways in which we can do good in our communities, ways in which as Christian citizens we can live socially responsible lives, to gain a reputation amongst others as people who are eager to do what is good, people who are willing to do whatever is good, people who are devoted to doing what is good, people who are peaceable and considerate and humble, Surely this is what we want to be, having become Christians. Then what does it mean to be a Christian, to live as a Christian? And what is going to help us in this? What is going to motivate us to live like this? What enables us to live in such a way? Well, the answer is the gospel. How can we put verses 1 and 2 into practice in our lives individually and into practice in our corporate life as a church? Well, it's the gospel. It's verses 3 to 7 that drive the actions and the attitudes and the speech that we read of in verses 1 and 2. The fact that God in his amazing grace has saved us, that has shown loving kindness towards us in Jesus, that we want to be like Jesus, that we want to live like this with the help of the Holy Spirit. May God help us. May God help us to rejoice much in our salvation. To rejoice that God has saved us. And then that we might live that out in our our dealings, in our interaction, in our relationships with those that we live amongst. Yes, in our homes. Yes, in the workplace. But also in wider society, in our community. That we might be those known as those who are eager to do what is good, those who are devoted to doing whatever is good. May God help us to do that. May we do that for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. Let's pray and then we'll sing our closing hymn together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we have read. We thank you for this... Description, this explanation of the gospel that is given by the Apostle Paul. And we think what it means to become a Christian, it is to just recognize that work that you have done, that you have done through Jesus in history, in his coming, living, dying and rising again. And the work that you do in individuals through the Holy Spirit And we pray that we might each know that you have saved us, that our trust and hope would be in Jesus. And we pray that our lives would change as the Holy Spirit is at work within us, renewing the desires and the attitudes of our hearts, that we would want to glorify you and we would want to glorify you by doing good to others, bearing witness to the loving kindness, to the grace, the mercy that we ourselves have experienced, that we might share that with others. And so we pray that you would help us, that we would be those who work for you, those who speak for you, those who act for you, those who think your thoughts after you. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us a desire to love others and so to fulfill that command that we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in so doing that we might glorify you, but also that in so doing that there might be those who are brought to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Saviour, and then that they too might live for him as their Lord. Hear us then and help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to stand to sing together number 525, O thou who camest from above the pure celestial fire to impart. After uh, we finish singing this hymn, remain standing. I'll pray just briefly. There's an opportunity for those who are not staying for communion to go, but otherwise then we'll move into our communion service.